Hello and welcome to the latest Read All About It podcast extra. I'm delighted again to be joined by Chris Dolan and this time around we are going to be talking about book adaptations, books that have been turned into films or TV series and Chris I thought you'd be the very man to discuss this with you because obviously over the years you've adapted many books into radio plays, TV plays, stage dramas but also part of what you do in terms of your teaching is very much involved in this sort of thing. That's right, Paul. Absolutely. At uh, MATV that I teach, which is a, a degree in television writing. Uh, one of the first assignments our, our students have to do is adaptation. And, and I've chosen that for, for a whole number of reasons, because I think it tells you a whole number of things about drama and books and what the difference is between the two of them. I think what we'll find as we talk uh, during the, the, the rest of this about other books and stuff is a bit of what people say, but it wasn't like the book. And I would argue that, well, it's never going to be. It can't be. Drama is a different thing, and you can't compare oranges and apples. So they are different things. They're just related in some way. So I, and I'm also, you're right, I've done, I've done a lot of uh, adapting, particularly for radio, actually. I do all the, the rebuses, and I've done something like about uh, Ian Rankin's rebus uh, on radio. We've, I've done about eight of them, or ten altogether. And I've had about 22, 23 different adaptations, different books. I've had more stuff adapted for theatre, and I've also adapted more stuff. So yeah, I've done I've done quite a lot of adaptation of one sort or another, and, I, and I'm very interested in it. And what we've done again, similar to the podcast we did about books to do with music, we both chose five books each, which we'll go through. Although I, I have to say, when I got your choice, I was slightly disappointed you never included the name of the rose because I've listened to your brilliant radio adaptation of that, and uh, which is one of my favourite novels as well, and. I, I like the film adaptation, but it was the first time I'd heard it on radio, and it was it was a brilliant adaptation. Yeah, I think I think I, I didn't mention especially just so you would say that. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> not, to be honest, so. actually, it's it's a brilliant one to talk about, and if I thought, but I would have mentioned it. And there's so many to talk about, but you're right, that was one that, if we do talk about that, that's the hardest thing I ever had to adapt, and for very specific reasons, more than all the 22 things or more that I've adapted for radio, particularly. Name of the Rose was the most difficult by far. Right. Well, we'll, we'll maybe we'll maybe come back to that in the course of of this podcast. But what we'll do is we'll maybe start with again the first of your choice. Interestingly, it was also a choice when we were talking about the music books for a different reason. But you mentioned already you've uh, you've adapted a lot of Ian Rankin's Rebus novels. What's the challenge of that? But and what's the enjoyment in, in you know adapting those crime novels to be radio plays? I love I love I love adapting any because I like reading and I, and I like drama I particularly like radio drama um, I love those books uh, so it's it's a joy to do to be honest it really is um, but they're they're very difficult and ways that maybe people who don't do this kind of stuff would find surprising I think you nearly always find when people know a crime novel and then they see an adaptation of a film or a television or a radio or whatever they nearly always say but the ending was different the ending is always different I mean virtually 99 times it is different because what works on the page doesn't work as drama, it just doesn't. So Ian Rankin himself quite often got a wee bit annoyed at this when, uh, when various other television uh, versions and, and the earlier radio versions than mine uh, happened, he kind of got annoyed at the fact that they kept on changing the, the endings. But it's just that the way you have to construct a drama, the endings that work very well over kind of more prosy, more descriptive, more time spent with the, the characters, just won't work so you have to find a snappier more you have to quite often change the crime and change what happens at the end but you're you're what you're always trying to do is to keep the integrity of the book the feel of the book the the idea of the book even though you have to change the details 
and in Rebus's books and Rankin's books, I've, I've achieved almost every single crime at some point and nearly every single ending. Because I was wondering that it must be, as you say, it must be difficult for the novelist when they hear or they see an adaptation of their novel. And have you had any feedback at all from Ian Rankin on any of your adaptations? Yeah, well, it's interesting because Radio 4 had tried it twice before uh, and it hadn't worked. And Ian wasn't wasn't very happy. A lot of people weren't happy with Joan Hanna's original television uh, adaptations of Rebus either. I actually quite like John Hanna's original ones, but uh, I don't think uh, Ian uh, was all that mad about them. Um, but it was interesting to do uh, to do this this lot um, to, for me to get uh, to get Rebus because Radio Four, the producer Bruce Young of BBC Scotland said to us, "This hasn't quite worked, and we're not quite sure why. Because I think you know, great books and great stories, they should work, and we're not sure why." So one of the things that you'll, again, we'll probably talk about here is the, the whole idea in uh, a film of an, or, or any kind of dramatisation of a narrator, because a book has always got a narrator. It's always got a narrator, even if it's a, an omniscient narrator. You know, he walked down the road or whatever. There's somebody leading you through. Yeah, there's a voice telling you stuff all the time, which we try not to do in drama. We try not to have a voice telling you all the time because it's undramatic. And you might as well just read the book. You want to go straight to the drama. So the way they'd done it before um, is they had one where they didn't have any narration whatsoever and they just tried to make the story tell itself on radio, which is difficult without the visuals and it didn't quite work. And then they tried an omniscient narrator. You know, Rebus walks in the room and he goes over to the dead body and he says, this is whoever. Um, so you get that kind of narration. And when I looked, I thought there's only one way I can think of getting around this and that is to actually be inside Rebus's head. So we do need some kind of narration but we need to make it dramatic in itself. And what we need to do is get inside John Rebus's head. So I write it from the point of view of Rebus himself. I walked in the room. As I walked in the room, I see the dead body and I can't help but think of blah, 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 whatever. So I put myself inside Rebus's head. I wrote it that way. The, the producers were pleased. Before we went to, to actually record it, we sent it to Ian. Uh, and I was thinking, bloody hell, he's going to hate this. He's going to say, well... I can't get inside John Rebus' head, but Chris bloody Dolan thinks he can get inside John <laughs> Rebus' head. But as it turned out, he liked it. Uh, and he's always he's always been very supportive of the radio adaptations. Partly also, we've got a great production uh, crew and a brilliant cast. John Doyke is just terrific in it. Um, yeah, that, so that's the kind of decision you have to take. You have to find another way of telling the story. And the way I found to tell the, the Rebus story is to get inside Rebus' head, which just allowed me all kinds of freedom. Um, and allowed me to actually steal from other books I wasn't actually adapting. I could take from earlier books and take old. So, so even I had Rebus think, still came from Ian Rankin. They just come through as Rebus talking directly to us. And there's a pressure then, you know, given the fact that those books are so popular and there's such a wide audience that, you know, when people are listening to those books and they're already invested in them and they've maybe read them, there's pressure on you when you're adapting them. Totally, um, yeah, because there is always an expectation, and there'll always be somebody somewhere that doesn't like them. I mean, we've been lucky. The ones in, uh, on Radio 4 have had, have had fantastic ratings, and uh, uh, there's a lot of response back in Radio 4 uh, dramas, and we've always had pretty, well, very positive. So that's uh, Rebus. Ian, uh, Ian Rankin will be delighted. Every time you're on this podcast, you're recommending these books. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first of the, the five books that I chose was... Charlie and the Chocolate Factory by Roald Dahl. Because obviously the two different film adaptations, the, the 1971 Gene Wilder film and then the more recent Johnny Depp one in 2005. And 
I, I sometimes wonder as well, like, particularly older people who would have watched the original film when they were when they were wee, they always prefer that to the more recent one. But I I actually really like the Johnny Depp version. I mean, I loved the book. I, you know, Red Rolled Down when I was a kid. I, I loved always when I read Charlie and Chocolate Factory. I always thought I'd love to eat a Wonka bar. They just sounded like the most amazing things. And I thought the Gene Wilder film. Uh, was very strange. It was brilliant, but very strange as well. He was such a such a strange uh, Willy Wonka character. But I think Johnny Depp in tackling such an iconic film and an iconic story, I actually really liked that film as well. I, I agree with you actually. Um, I'm, I'm not quite as big a fan of it. It's one, one of those books that wasn't. I love Road Alba, but for some reason that book wasn't really part of my childhood. Wasn't really particularly aware of that much when I was younger of the Wilder version. I've uh, seen them both more recently uh, as an adult, uh, and like you, I actually prefer Depths. There's something kind of weirdly, like, slightly nightmarish about the, way, the Gene Wilder version that I, I find a wee bit kind of unsettling. Depths got it a wee bit too, and it's clearly in the book. Now, I've never read the book, so it's You've clearly never something. Read the books. Yeah, no, I've never. I've, I've read a lot of Roald Dahl, but I've, I've never read uh, Charlie Joe Factory. Right. Well, that's that's another book I'm going to have to give you to, to read. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to build up a library here, steal all your books, Paul. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think, as I say, I think it's it's always difficult when you, I'm guessing when anybody revisits a film, particularly one that was iconic like that, and, and for all of us who grew up watching that film, the original, it's, it's always a daunting prospect, but I think because Johnny Depp did it differently, and, and maybe hinted more of the, the past of Willy Wonka and why he was the way he was now, and uh, I really liked that, I, I, I really, I must admit, I, I, I thought it was a really good adaptation. I so thought in my head, I could have, it's around about the same time as the adaptation of uh, uh, Alice in Wonderland, which Depp was in as well, am I right? Yeah, I'm not sure if it was, I mean, the, that, the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory film, I think, was 2005. I'm not sure when Alice in Wonderland came out. But later, I think, yeah. Um, but they both have a quite kind of stylistic, uh, they're very colourful, they're very in-your-face, they're very imaginative, they look amazing. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed that, I mean, I, because your Charlie and Chocolate Factory is kind of my Alice in Wonderland. I loved Alice in Wonderland uh, as, a, as a kid. Well, not a very young kid. I probably was first read and was able to read it maybe about 10 years of age or something like that, because it's still kind of a slightly old-fashioned prose. But I remember loving it and being absolutely wowed by it. But I very seldom liked any any uh, television or film version of it, because, again, it's not my vision. And, and they become slightly nightmarish to me, which I didn't really think they were when I first read them. Uh, and that and that but that they, they, all those adaptations seem to be slightly nightmarish but but that's not necessarily bad thing. we are, are going to uh, go off in a, a real different direction now with your second choice and it's a book of, of more recent times in scottish literature and again another another certainly a film that's very iconic with a, an iconic soundtrack but a, a really brilliant novel as well and that's train spotting by urban welsh absolutely I mean, I, I'm absolutely, that's probably not I'm probably a bit too old, but I'm kind of, I was in the right time, the right place for train spotting. Uh, train spotting first, I mean, it was, it was honestly virtually unknown, and I happened to be living in Edinburgh at the time, and I happened to know uh, a little bit about Rebel Inc., which is this kind of underground virtual press at the time, who was publishing pretty much unknown uh, writers, but who are all revolutionary, all doing this kind of new Scottish dialect, very punchy, very in-your-face, uh, very politically angry. Uh, and I remember, I'll never forget reading uh, Trainspotting. And it's one of those, you know, I can see myself in a room, a wee flat in Edinburgh, and I remember I'd go out to get milk or something like that, and I couldn't, no, I couldn't put the book down, I had to take it with me and read it going up the road. And it is, to this day, the funniest book I've ever read in my life. 
was just absolutely howling laughing. I was also, all the things that everyone else wanted to be, I was also disgusted, angered, amazed, um, terrified, the whole lot. I mean, the, the amount of emotions that book puts you through. Because the book is, is is so, you know, the way it's written at first glance, you would think that's going to be so difficult, if not impossible, to adapt. But the, the film actually managed to weave its way through the story and, and bring out something that was absolutely superb. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's quite interesting. The, the first adaptation of it I saw was actually the, the theatre one, which a friend of mine was in, uh, well, not many a few other people in the cast. Um, and actually, I actually really liked that. And it was pretty dark because there's so much in Trainspotting. There's one bad part of Trainspotting and that's those junky dreams which you just end up not reading. But the, the, the rest of it, those bits in italics every now and then, uh, the rest of it I think is just an extraordinary book actually. I don't think Herman Welch has ever quite talked it really. I mean just the amount of content in there, you know, first reading is just incredibly funny. You know, after that is all kinds of kind of levels of human experience and stuff. So I think that the, the, the play, the version I saw anyway, found real darkness of it, so it's a really, really dark play about, you know, addiction and, and, and all of that. It was really difficult. Uh, and I think the, the book went somewhere in between, pretty dark, but it still got, I think, what I thought was, it got that kind of amazing liveliness of it. You could hear the, the, the that soundtrack. I'm convinced that I could hear the soundtrack they used when I read it five years before the film came out. I mean, obviously I couldn't have, but when the soundtrack they used, that's the feeling that it gave me as I read it at the time. And that kind of real kind of iggy pop, lust for life, that kind of real phenomenal rhythm to it. And I thought they got that phenomenally well. And added to it, made, actually made some parts of that better. I mean, that, that opening shot of, of you and McGregor come down and the, and the uh, what's, what's the speech again? Choose life. Choose life. Um, phenomenal, you know. So, yeah, I think I think they added to it. I think they found what Welsh was wanting to do and they did even more. I think the, the, the script by John Hodge is fantastic great piece of adaptation. So I think that's an example of fairly faithful uh, adaptation. It's trying to stick quite close to Irvin Welsh's novel and is actually adding some extra elements to it to make it in some ways even better. So I think it's, I think it's a great movie. I think it's a great book and a great movie. Because I, I've seen the, the stage play in more recent years and in, in some respects, I mean, it's, it's some of it's more shocking than the film, actually. There's some scenes that are in the play that aren't in the film and Actually, you kind of there's a sharp intake of breath with actually a couple of the, the scenes, and it's a again a, there's some bits where you could see the audience were laughing almost in anticipation of what was coming because they remember it from the film. But there's other bits where it, you can actually it was a kind of almost collective gasp of oh, exactly. I forgot that was in the book. Talk about most that by the way, a story I heard about this. Well, I, I don't know the guy's name, anyway, so I wouldn't mention it just in case it's, it's not true. But I believe it is true. So uh, somebody I know very well in the industry told me they were. When they went to the casting crew of Trainspotting, which I was at actually, went to the casting crew of it, uh, the one in Glasgow, this guy was sitting next to another guy, and a, and a bloke. You, do you remember the scene when uh, when yeah. Renton is, is doing cold turkey and he sees the baby crawl up the wall and over the ceiling? Do you remember yeah. that? The guy sitting next to my mate said, oh, no, I, said, I can never bring my wife to If my wife ever sees this film, I'm dead. And he said, why? He said, well, I'm, I'm involved in the design of the film and that baby is modelled on our child and I never <laughs> the missus. <laughs> Can you imagine the mother of that child going, oh my God. <laughs> the most shocking thing ever. So I think I think a film even might get some of that shock element in as well. But you're right, the play's really dark. Play version I saw was absolutely, you know, went totally for the dark. So that, 
and and I think you know the, the the film managed to get that as well as well as the energy as well as the humour. So the film is very very cool. And as I say, I think it's a brilliant novel as well, and, and well worth reading. Again, my my second choice will will take another leap in the world of literature, and I've gone for the Three Musketeers, which. It's one of my favourite novels. I think it's just an incredible adventure story, an incredible historical novel. It's just, I've read it three or four times and I absolutely love it. It's one of those books, whenever I do start it, I just can't put it down. I think the, the characters of the Three Musketeers and D'Artagnan are great, but I think the likes of Cardinal Richelieu as a, as a, as a baddie within literature is absolutely brilliant and it's drawn on the whole kind of political system, you know, everything that's going on there between France and England and all the politics of the different royal families and him pulling the strings behind the scenes. It's an amazing novel. I think generally film producers and film writers, have, I think, have struggled with the film adaptations because they've almost made it kind of an adventure romp, but it's almost like a farce, but actually I don't think it is a farce. I think it's a, it's a really strong adventure novel with a really strong political thread running through it. And actually... BBC adapted, they called it The Musketeers maybe about four four or five years ago. That was probably the best of the adaptations that I've seen. I think some of the film versions have been pretty abject, actually. I agree with you. Uh, And I think it's it's funny, just when I I saw your list, uh, Paul, I was thinking, this this is a mad theory, I haven't thought about it any more than 10 seconds. But it seems (laughs) to me that one thing is I'm going to come on a couple of my choices and other choice led on. We're going to come on about how much the kind of the, the, the period uh, drama is such a big thing in, in British and American and culture. Uh, and so all those books by, you know, by the, the 19th century, big writers have all been adapted endlessly, you know, absolutely endlessly. It all strikes me until Les Mis, the big French 19th century novels haven't been uh, uh, done well. And I'm not quite sure why that is. Why, why is it that a lot of those Victor, I mean, you know, the, the, the Hunchback of Notre Dame is probably the exception. But so many of those great novels don't see it. They may have been done in French and we've just never seen them. But it strikes me as something harder about the, the big French novels, and I haven't a clue why that is. But somebody could do a PhD on that. Why are those novels not been more successful as dramatisation? I agree with you. I love that novel. I haven't read it for many years. Loved it. Loved the bigness of it. Um, the politics are clearly different from the politics I would normally read, so that's quite interesting. It's taken a bit more from kind of the, 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 old, the old order side, uh, point of view and all of that. And I agree with you, I really enjoyed the, the BBC adaptation. I, th- I thought it was also, I found a kind of a humour in it. I thought it was a, a really good watch, um, really well cast. All the action, all the colour, all that stuff you want from a period drama. And also there was moments of, of it, was, it was quite funny, uh, which I suspect is true of the book as well. It was too long ago since I've read it. Yeah, I mean, I always tell I tell people if you know they would love reading it, and I thought you know it's interesting. I was going to ask you in terms of how key casting is because in that TV series, The Musketeers, they had Peter Capaldi as Cardinal Richelieu, and as I say, I think he is a is a character, although he's obviously a, a character of history, but in a novel, is absolutely brilliant. And I thought the casting of Peter Capaldi was just perfect, and I wonder how key that is sometimes in your adaptations. Of you can maybe you can produce the best adaptation of a novel that you're capable of, but if the casting's wrong, it needs to all gel together. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's generally true of anything. I think, you know, um, 
one of the lovely things about writing drama is it's not it's not a one man game. You know, I can write a script, but they'll you know, so keep telling my students and tell myself, remind myself, if you write a really really good script, what you're doing is providing a springboard, a really strong springboard that a good director and great actors can jump off and make even better. That's what you're doing. You're giving them the basic, you know, you know, the chassis of the thing, and then they'll make it better. So you're always looking for a great casting. And by the way, Peter Capaldi is always great casting, no matter what it is. But yeah, you're right, and an adaptation is even more so because I think we're talking earlier on because people already have an idea in their head. So you need to get somebody who can who can both you know make the people who know the novel well feel at home, but still do their own things. It's quite it's quite a big ask of an actor, I think, uh, for to do it. To go back for one last hour, I'll stop going about the rebus. The, the reason, one of the reasons I think it works so well is because of Ron Donaghy. So hopefully, you know, my scripts are good and nothing else about the production's good, but but Ron's rebus is just, he, he, he underplays it unbelievably beautifully. So I just think the magic of that is he is Rebus. He just is. His voice is fantastic all the way through. His acting's amazing all the way through. So yeah, that's a great piece of casting uh, by BBC, by Bruce Young. So if you get the right guy, and then from a writer's point of view, if it's a series, I know exactly how to write for him. You know, I, know, I know what he does well. I know what he doesn't like so much. Uh, I know what you'll find more depth in. So yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. Yeah, casting is so much because it is in the end of the day, it's the actors we're watching. You know, so you and I are interested in the writers and you know the directors and all that. But most of us, when actually go in the movies or put on the telly, it's the actors that have to really, really speak to us. Now we're on to book number five. We're halfway there, and it's another one of your choices. And it's uh, although we're, we're recording this in the middle of April, it's actually a festive story. Is uh, a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Yeah, uh, I think I, the other one I think I might have chosen two of them. I've sent my list. There's so many possibilities. I can't remember what I chose. I think I might have chosen Pride and Prejudice as well. I think it's probably even Stevens there, just about on the most adapted book of all time. Pride and Prejudice. It seems to me that every time you turn on the telly, there's a new version of it. It's just unbelievable. How many of them can they possibly do? Dickens is endlessly adapted because he's just phenomenal. So there's all sorts of. I think he's particularly good at television, actually. The Christmas Carol is extraordinary, really. You know, he, you know, he writes this in 1843. Um, it becomes an instant bestseller. Basically, our entire idea of Christmas comes from it's half Prince Albert and Christmas trees inside your house and all that, that kind of Germanic idea. But it's actually, it's more than half, to be honest. It's Charles Dickens. The whole idea of a turkey at Christmas, about a party, uh, about being charitable, about snow, because there happened to be a very, very cool snap kind of winter when he's writing that. All those ideas have completely and utterly become Christmas to us. And it's just fascinating watching the adaptions all the way through. It's one of the earliest things ever to be adapted in full. Uh, I think there's a, there's a version from 1909, uh, which is a full adaptation on film, silent, obviously. And it's just adapted all the time. I mean, almost every year. And it's adapted in every language everywhere. So I think it probably tops uh, anything by Jane Austen as being unbelievably adapted, adaptable, and we just cannot get enough. Now, I've never heard anybody go, oh no, not another Christmas carol. If they do, there's something wrong with them, you know, because everybody loves that story, and every adaptation, either you might love it, you might hate it, but, you know, you're, you're going to be interested. You know, it's interesting, I only read the, the, the book a couple of years ago. For some reason, of all the Dickens books I'd read, I, it was only the last couple of years, I'd read it, and even just... If you just do a Google search for a Christmas Carol adaptation, there's even in the list of it, there's another film adaptation that's been written by Tom Stoppard that's obviously 
in production or, or being filmed as as we speak. It's 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 never ending. Um, where do you stand on the Muppets Christmas Carol then, which is their adaptation of it? I think it's my favourite of all. <laughs> absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. I think again, what a great adaptation can do. So again, that's that's not faithful. up until now. We've been mainly talking about faithful adaptations. You know, the writer and the production trying to get the heart and soul of the book, can tell the story as it was told. I think this is what we call. I think there's three different types. I think there's a faithful uh, uh, adaptation, loose adaptation, and even further is inspired by. So you might not even recognise as a link, but uh, we'll talk about. I've got one of those things later on to talk about. But I think that that Muppets one is uh, is a loose adaptation. So it takes the essential story, and uh, Scrooge, who's called, I can't remember Ember's name now, the actor Michael Caine. Caine is kind of in the book, yeah. Caine is kind of more or less the Scrooge of the book, except everything else in about is the Muppet Show. Yeah, so this kind of weird stuff that they just play with the whole idea of the Muppet Show and puppets and. And what's funny for children, but it's actually kind of, you know, I got a, a, another media innuendo for adults. I just think it's genius from beginning to end. I think it's dead Christmas Day. I think it's funny, still packs his punch, still gets the message across, but it's still kind of really warm. And who does he want that Christmas Eve with a, with a big pint of Guinness in front of him? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not sure if, I'm not sure if that's what Charles Dickens was envisioning at the time, but. I think he would have approved. <laughs> You are listening to a special episode of the Read All About It podcast where Chris Dolan and I are talking about books that have been adapted for film, TV, radio or the stage. And Chris, we're on to my next choice. And this is actually one of my favourite books again uh, of all time, which is uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And when I've, I've read this book again a few times and each time I read it, you know, sometimes you read books. So I read a, a crime novel recently and it was truly awful. And every page, I, and I actually persevered, which I don't usually do because I kept thinking, I can't believe this has been published by a proper publisher. But then it gave, what it did is it gave me this sense of, I know I can write better than that. So I, I kind of almost was this renewed fervour to write. The Road, whenever I read that, I know, I just know in my heart of hearts, I will never be able to write even anywhere near as good as Cormac McCarthy. But at the same time, I just think that's the challenge because for me, that's the, as a book, it's just, I just absolutely loved it. So when the film adaptation came out, I had that slight apprehension because I loved the book so much. But I actually thought the film adaptation, I think Beagle Mortison was in it. I actually really enjoyed it. And again, I thought it was a really faithful adaptation and stands alone as, as a film, but supplements the book really well. I, I, sh- I should pretend here, that's not all one that I should just pretend I've seen, but I haven't seen. <laughs> I came here to see it, I've never seen it. One news now, I missed it when it first came out, never saw the cinema, and then I've never quite caught with it. Well, you, I love having the Cormac McCarthy's written. I mean, I just think it's just such astonishingly. What, what what that man can do with fewer words than anybody else is just extraordinary. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of a magic trick. You're reading it going, how, how can he use so few words yet, yet tell you so much stuff? I just there's something unbelievably brilliant the way the guy the, way the guy writes, and I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying that for the road, I think it's the film that gives a, sl- a slight hope at the end, where McCarthy originally doesn't. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing to do. I'm not saying one you know is right or wrong. They shouldn't. They should. I'm just saying it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That you could actually take quite a different decision from the original uh, writer. That's why when I'm writing, apart from Ian Rankin, when I'm doing my radio adaptations, I much prefer my writers. Uh, original writers to be either very, very far away or preferably dead. 
could be kind of good like say that's not what I meant. Uh, I think the road, the, the novel, it kind of starts in the middle of something and ends. It just ends. So I, I can understand why somebody then looks at it and just gives that kind of wee, as you say, that wee glimmer of hope. You could still take that from the novel, I think, because it doesn't end. There's not a happy ending. There's not an ending as such. It's just kind of, it kind of it moves on with. Well, I don't really want to want to say without without spoiling the novel for people haven't haven't read it. But I think there is that kind of sense of almost like life life goes on continuing so there's that you could get that whether it's obviously maybe not the visual element in the book of, of that element of hope but i think it's still there in the, in the novel probably i mean to be honest i don't know well enough just i remember i mean it's just one of those issues that comes up quite a lot the, the other one that i remember is another great this time an adaptation of a play um i, I love the dicaprio version of romeo and juliet um, i think it's brilliantly done so but i think i think i'm right in saying at the end they give Romeo and Juliet a moment before both of them die. They have, they share just a single. I mean, I think it's tiny. There's just a moment uh, before she dies as well. Shakespeare doesn't give doesn't give that moment. Uh, it's bleaker. It's a bleaker ending. Uh, the the misunderstanding is complete. But the the Hollywood version felt that was that was just too much and has to sweeten the pill slightly. So I think you, you quite often find that. And I think and and, I'm, and it's, it's not a criticism. I think it's quite often true of drama. That there's something about being in your face, shorter, more intense. That's quite often a, a, a tendency to want to give just a little bit more idea of redemption at the end of a drama than there is necessarily in a play or a book. Not always do. Sometimes the other way around. But uh, there's a tendency to want to do that. We're on to your next book choice. I know you had chosen uh, Pride and Prejudice again as as one of the most adapted novels, but. See, just come back to what we were talking about right at the very start when I mentioned The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, which, again, is a, is a wonderful book. I've, I've spoken about it in, in previous podcasts. Uh, there's been the film adaptation, Sean Connery. There was a more recent uh, TV adaptation uh, on BBC, but you adapted it for radio, and I, I've listened to that, and uh, I really loved it. But you, again, I remember you telling me at the time, but you, you mentioned there it was, it was the most difficult thing that you've ever written. Yeah. I mean, uh, in one sense, it's a gift to the radio writer, radio dramatist, than it is to the uh, to the visual dramatist, because all that stuff about potions and all that stuff about you know, the meanings of flowers and the meaning of all these things, actually, radio can do quite well. It's, it's, it's actually easier. You, you can make it into a kind of a poetry. Uh, so I, I had Brother Williams, I have him kind of being almost like a bit of a poet, and, that's his, and you can have the sound effects of him kind of making up potions and stuff like that, or one of the brothers making up potions. So in, in one sense, it's actually a bit of a gift because uh, the language is so beautiful and the ideas are so great. The problem is, if you don't see anybody, think about it, everybody in that film, just apart from one female character who's only there for a moment or two, uh, think of that book, everybody in the book is a middle-aged man. And, and also, they've all got the same profession. So how the hell do you know when you're listening to it, whether it's Brother John, Brother Jorge, Brother Michael, Brother... How do you know? Yeah. Um, who's, who's visually, visually that's easy to do in the film because they just make them all different shapes and sizes. I, visually, it's not a problem, you know. You see them, they're all different. But orally, vocally, it's almost impossible. So I, so this really bothered me for ages. How could I get around this? Apart from being really, been really awful, and every single time anybody spoke, you always can name check them, you know. So tell me, brother Horky, uh, what is it you think of this? Well, actually, I'm not brother Horky. I'm brother James, and I'm telling you, <laughs> brothers, you know, you you can't do it. So you have to find a way. And the way I did it was that in the, although it's not particularly a major part of the, the, the film version, in the book, actually this monastery has monks from different countries. 
if yeah. you remember, Jorge is Spanish, you know, William is English. And there's French monks, there's German monks, there's uh, Italian monks and French monks. You know. So I thought, well, we can't have an allo, allo. I kind of feel going in Italian accent. I am brother to Stefano. <laughs> that would just sound terrible. So I can't do that. So what I decided to do was I made all the Italian monks. I, first of all, I had to kind of, you know, distill down to about six characters, you know, six male characters. But I made one of them German. Uh, but he spoke, so he had a German name, but apart from that, he spoke in a Welsh accent. Uh, the, the Italian monk spoke in an Irish accent. The French monk spoke in a Scottish accent. The English monk spoke in an English accent. And that did it. That did it. Once people got that, that, uh, that they could hear the Scottish, oh, that's, that's the Italian guy, or that's the, the because they're regional accents. And that's how we got through it. But it was still, you had to do all kinds of things to make the vocal ticks so people knew that's what he's speaking. So it was, it was dead difficult and it took us loads of uh, drafts to get through it. But I was dead pleased at the end of it. I thought it was great. Mm-hmm. Again, great casting. We had a great cast who just managed to deal with that and do things with their voices so it was clear all the time who was speaking. Yeah. What did you make of the Sean Connery film? I loved it. Yeah, I loved it. Um, I, th- I thought it worked. I thought, again, it's been known your medium. It didn't try to do the things that the book does brilliantly because it just the medium wouldn't be able to do it. I thought it got that who done it this of it brilliantly well. I thought it was a you know, kind of edgier seat. I thought you were all the way questioning what is happening here. I thought it was very well constructed. I thought he was great in it. Yeah, I really liked it. It's, it's, yeah, it's a lighter, more popular uh, thing than the book is, but hey, what's wrong with that? And the book itself is is absolutely brilliant. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. It's one of those books that, in fact, for a lockdown time, if you haven't read it, I'm jealous. And if you yeah. have to go back to make one of the ones, I'll go back to I mean, actually, that, that's just to finish off of Pride and Prejudice. It's just in there, those ones that's always been, so I kind of did it a wee bit with the Christmas Carol. It's just been done so often. The one thing I would say about Pride and Prejudice, I think is interesting, is how each, and it's true of Christmas Carol too, or anything that's been adapted, that as you watch different generations do it, how they all change. So the big change that most people would remember, and people who even know the book now get the two scenes mixed up. But Colin Firth as Darcy coming out of the water in the wet shirt, the, the wet, the wet see-through shirt, famous scene from the BBC adaptation of it 10 years ago, is not in the book. <laughs> he doesn't come out of the water at any point whatsoever. It's it's such a kind of a late 20th century, early 21st century thing to do. It really is. It's such, an, it's such a kind of a, but such a modern thing to do that. There's no way that would have been acceptable in, in Austin's time. Yet, somehow, you would swear blind that it wasn't the book or it should have been the book. It somehow feels right. So that I love that kind of interplay between, you know, you know the book, but you know the film, and you know the TV series, and they all kind of mix in to, to each other. So there's something about Pride and Prejudice that every generation thinks they get something new to say about that and do it in a different way. Uh, yeah. and it does seem to completely allow itself to be rethought, readapted. Jane Austen generally. The other great one is of, of Jane Austen, you know, as I said earlier, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's Faithful Adaptation, I think, and there's a loose adaptation, and then there's Just Inspired By, taking the same idea. So Jane Austen's Emma becomes Clueless. Have you ever seen Clueless, Paul? Yes, yes. I mean, that's just phenomenal. You take a 19th century novelist, provincial girl, and you make it a high school girl in America, and you take essentially the same idea of the matchmaker, and that's brilliant. So it's kind of, as an adaptation, as a not, who cares? You know, it's kind of loosely based on. And Jane Austen seems to summon in Austen, which which seems in some ways so completely 19th century novel, but in some ways there's someone in that that every generation feels they can do something with. 
I'm going to go back to a Scottish novel now for, we're on to book, I think, number eight. And it's a book called Brond by Frederick Lindsay, uh, which I read a few years ago. It's a crime novel. And I actually read it on the back of, it was adapted, I think, for Channel 4. Stratford Johns was Brond in the, the TV adaptation. A very young John Hanna, I think it was one of his first TV roles. And the, the scene, there's a scene right at the very start, so it's not a spoiler to say that John Hanna's a student, I think, at Glasgow University, and he's walking along the bridge at Kelvin Grove, and Stratford Johns basically throws someone over the bridge and into the water, and he, so he basically witnesses this murder, and it's a real, that's the starting point of how he gets embroiled in this uh, crime, and uh, Bronze a real mysterious character, and I loved the TV series, I thought it was very unusual and not the sort of thing you would have normally seen, I think, on BBC One or, or STV. And on the back of it, I read the, the novel, which I, I loved as well. And um, it's, a, it's a novel I've never actually gone back to, but on the back of thinking about this, I, I looked it out again and I thought, I'm, this is it's one I'm going to read because I remember enjoying it at the time. But again, it's a book that I came to having enjoyed the, the adaptation. I, th- I think it's one of the, 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 one of the most important uh, dramas, actually, and uh, Scottish dramas. It's a it's, it's kind of late 80s, am I right? Yeah. I remember being really important in a whole number of ways. I'm pretty sure it's it's directed by Paddy, not directed, it's, it's produced by Paddy Higson, who's just crucial to everything that's been done in Scottish television and, and television in Scotland rather for the past 50 years, uh, from the from the, the, the all the Versailles films, Bill Versailles films, and all, and Charlie Gorman films. So Paddy and so on, and she goes on and does stuff like this. I'm pretty sure it's her directed I think, by Michael Keaton Jones. So who then goes on to become huge? I remember being just a fantastic series. I think the I think it was maybe in terms of the TV I think it was a two or three parter ah, and I think the book itself was a standalone. He wrote a lot of, of novels, but I think Brond as itself was just a standalone crime thriller, kind of political thriller. Yeah, it was very complex and just kind of remember that. Remember that program was on at the time, roughly at the same time. Remember that was at the edge of darkness. Oh yeah, that kind of it, it was those that kind of quite strange and but tied up with the politics of the time and. It's just slightly different from maybe what we were used to seeing in Absolutely. terms of dramas as well. You know, it's funny because you know, people talk now about, about Tartan Noir, uh, and I do think Tartan Noir is great. And I mean, the big mystery of Tartan Noir, and I'm pretty sure I'm right in saying, Laid Law has never been made. Never seen a Laid Law, and it is probably the greatest Tartan Noir of all time, the three Laid Law novels by yeah, Michael Annie. Absolutely, yeah. But people forget about Brond. Yeah, I think Brond is crucial in a way that, you know, people forget about those. There's quite a number of early Scottish television dramas which were fantastic. John Brown is a, is a really good writer and a, an old friend of mine, sadly, died a few years ago. The One Game, The Justice Game, Brond, uh, a whole number of dramas that were really good. And then Taggart, uh, Laidlaw never got made, sadly, uh, but then Taggart. So, yeah, actually, I think Tartan Noir, you know, people say that Shetland kind of comes off the back of Scandinavian Noir. But actually, I think Scottish tele- television in Scotland has been doing tartan noir since the 70s. You know, and we've done really, really good stuff. And Bronze, so I'd love to go back and see that again, Paul. Thanks for reminding me of it. Yeah, it's, it's something I'd like to watch again. Actually, I'm sure you can probably find it somewhere. Um, and I, as I say, well, you can you can watch it again, and I'll I'll read the novel. And then we can, <laughs> we, can, we can compare and confare. Absolutely. Yeah. We're on to your last uh, choice, Chris, and it's Dracula. Why Dracula? I don't know. I've heard other people disagree with me. Um, personally, I found it one of the most boring books I've ever written. I, 
I've, I've, I think I have read, I, I did, I finally got it all read a few years ago, finally thought, I'm going to crack this balloon book. I don't really believe in that, by the way, I think if the book's bored and put it down, reading should be a pleasurable act, not something you feel guilty about. Um, but for some reason, I did want to kind of get through. I think, Pax, I'm, I'm fascinated. Why do people, what is it about this book? Because the book itself strikes me as being really turgidly written, really slow moving, uh, a bit kind of muddled at places. I, I, I just, I don't like the book. But I think what Bram Stoker does is come up with an unbelievable idea. I mean, the idea is out there, but and, and I, there was a programme on Lisa, I don't know if you saw it, about how he wrote it. It doesn't, for me, take anything away from Bram Stoker. He's still, although there was kind of myths from Eastern Europe about characters like this and about, you know, men who are kind of half dead or dead and, and you know, mixed up with bats and stuff like that. You know, there was all kinds of mythologies and folklore. I still think it was him who came up with this specific idea of this one guy who's the king of all the vampires. I just think it's an unbelievably brilliant idea. It's a bit like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. The, the Dracula one's an even greater idea because, again, like the other great adaptations, every year somebody's doing a Dracula of some sort. You know, since whenever, when was that, right? in the 1890s or something, or early in the, the 20th century? It has been endless. I think it was adapted almost immediately. I think he, in fact, adapted it immediately into play. And then one of the earliest silent films of all time. I mean, it's just something, there's an idea at the heart of that which is so powerful that it just keeps on getting adapted and adapted and adapted. And sometimes terribly, you know, some of the, the really bad, you know, uh, Hammer Hammer House of Horror ones. Uh, I still love them, actually, but, uh, but they're a bit cheesy. Into kind of, you know, some versions which are real modern classics, you know. And then the whole idea that vampires now just become part of modern culture. It's funny because I, I know the, the story, but I have never, I've never read Dracula and I've never seen any of, of the adaptations. I don't know why it's because I, I just, I think, I don't know if it would scare me. I didn't even watch the, the recent thing that was on. Um, but it's a book I want to read. I know you've you've said to me before it's, it's quite a difficult read, but it's, it's one I think I should tick off a list, as it were. I think it's worth doing. I mean, also other people disagree with me. Other people like it. Yeah, I, I really, really didn't. I mean, I did think, I remember, you know, I did find read it. I really didn't think it was that great a book. I thought it was a book with a fantastic idea in it. Uh, rather than being a great book in its own right. But and other people disagree with that. So by all means, read it and you might enjoy it. But I do think it, and there's something, I think there's something fundamental about that idea uh, about the kind of the undead that can come back and by biting you, there's something, there's something deeply erotic in it somewhere. There's something kind of really, really scary about it all. There's something about uh, the whole modern idea of death and dying and all of that. So just, it's just, it's, you know, Bram Stoker hit on an extraordinary idea. And I think that's quite often what people are looking for in adaptations. You know that old rule about a bad book makes a good film and vice versa? I don't think that's true. I think there has to be something essentially dramatic within the book that makes the adapter want to take it and do something with. So I don't think at the end of the day anything's completely faithful. I think at the end of the day, anybody who wants to make an adaptation still has something to say, still wants to use that story to say something about the world that they live in rather than the book that was originally written. And there's something in Dracula which I think is fundamental adaptation is all about. You take this idea, you don't lose the essence of it, but you say something new. Well, I'll, I'll definitely, it's a book I'm, I'm definitely going to read it at some point in the Dracula and Frankenstein are on my list of books to, really? to read. Yeah, it'll be very interesting if you make them both. I found them both difficult reads. I think Frankenstein's a better book, but I found them both quite difficult reads. We're on to the 10th and final book, and it's my last choice, and it's a book called Shoeless Joe by W.P. Kinsella who was a Canadian author, and 
not many people might not know the book, but though a lot more people will know the, the film adaptation, which was Field of Dreams, uh, which starred Kevin Costner. And ah, right, and I saw your list, I didn't recognise the title. Ah, right, yeah, that's a great film. So the film is my favourite film. You know, it's, you know, it's difficult to, it's impossible to choose your favourite book, favourite uh, piece of music, but I, I had in heart, that's my favourite film. I absolutely love everything about that film and having watched it and you know, once I discovered it was an adaptation, I went back and at the time I had to order the book from Canada and it came and I love the book and the adaptation is very faithful. Basically, it's a, a farmer in Iowa who hears a voice while he's out plowing the fields that says, if you build it, he will come. So it, he interprets this as meaning he's got to plow up some of his field and build a, a, a baseball field and basically some old baseball players from the past Shoeless Joe, which is the title of the, the novel, Shoeless Joe Jackson was a baseball player for the Chicago White Sox in the early 20th century, and quite a few of them were banned for life because apparently they were accused of fixing the 1919 World Series in baseball. And this is in the book, this is how we have been redeemed. And in the in the novel, the main character, Ray Kinsella, goes on this sort of journey. Uh, the boys keeps telling him to do different things. And in the novel, in the film, he kidnaps a, a kind of 1960s writer who is played by James L. Jones, and the writer's character is called Terence Mann. In the novel, he actually goes and kidnaps J.D. Salinger. Now, apparently, when they were going to make the film, Salinger, you know, Salinger was notoriously protective of his privacy and, and, and quite litigious as well. And I think... He threatened to, to sue W.P. Kinsella when he wrote the novel, but they managed to, to, to win that case. But when they were making the film, he was threatening to sue the filmmakers. And rather than getting broiled in any legal wranglings, they just changed the characters' names. But in the in the book, it's uh, J.D. Salinger who gets kidnapped. But the book is, is brilliant. It's, it's a whole series of different baseball books. They're baseball-themed. They're quite magical. But as I say, I, I came to the novel because I absolutely adore that film. It is just my favourite film of all time. It's interesting, we haven't really talked much about it, but it's, you know, adaptation is such a fascinating area, we could go and we could do a whole series of podcasts on this, you know, and we could talk to other people, because it's, it's, there's so much to talk about, and that's one of the things we haven't really talked about until now, going the other way, you know, everybody always talks about reading the book and then seeing the film, or the television series, actually, if an awful lot of it, it's the other way around. I mean, just off the top of my head, I was just thinking before we, we started talking there about, just what's on telly now? I think it's partly because it's so expensive to make films and television um, that they want to know that's already successful. So they let the novel do the work and then they go, OK, we'll now adapt it. So, I mean, you know, Game of Thrones, book, uh, Sherlock, the series on fellow uh, still doing all and coming soon, I think, book, Outlander, books, Handmade Tale, books. There are so much, you know, are actually books, television, people are knots and crosses, the big series on just now, book. I mean, there's just so much of it. So I think more often than not now, we're actually seeing the, t- the adaptation before we go to the original. And I think your journey has now become more and more common. You see a film and then you go to the book. And after that, that, a whole number of months of that, exactly the same as you saw a television program, thought, I've never read that book, I really fancy it. So that's an interesting uh, kind of new direction. That, that was how I came to Bond originally. But it's interesting, I think, I, I remember reading something recently, Netflix in particular are, are driving that sense of adapting books, you know, again, because as you say, there's a story's being published, it's maybe built up an audience, so they know that there's, it's kind of, kind of half track record of success, so that's why they are, because they are obviously trying to generate content all the time, uh, Netflix, Amazon Prime, etc, etc, so they're, they're going back and they're, they're 
buying up the adaptations for a lot of books, which I suppose as, as authors, you're always hoping that somebody stumbles upon your book. And I th- I've said to you before, I did say to you in a previous podcast, I, I think somebody should be ad- adapting a Lear. I mean, I just say it's, it's one of the things that keeps us going, Paul, isn't it? You never know, you know, that one of these days someone might just pick up one of, one of your uh, Glasgow history books in the East End, you know, and go, that's exactly what I'm looking for. And 10 years after you wrote it, and you, you've almost forgotten about yourself. It's something because, you know, who knows? And uh, you know, you're right. I think everyone kind of half wishes that might happen. And I suppose it's also one of the tricks about writing is your writing is kind of loose enough for other people to build on. So, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating uh, adaptation. And it's, it's lovely doing it. And it's, it's, it would be lovely to get done to you. You know, I've had the odd wee thing that other people have taken bits of mine and, and translated them or, or, or done a different version on stage. And it is fascinating seeing other people's versions of, of what you've really, really written. I've still to I've still to enjoy that. But um, what the, my last question to you actually was just: Are you working on any adaptations yourself just now? Yeah, a couple of uh, things on the BBC. So they're, they're looking just now at the possibility of doing another Rebus and another couple of uh, ideas I've got in one of which is a, an adaptation of a Margaret Atwood book. So I don't know if that's going to happen here or not. Fingers crossed. I'm adapting because we're in lockdown and because the Edinburgh Festival is not going to happen. I had started to write a play for David Heyman, which was going to uh, premiere rather at the Edinburgh Festival, which isn't going to happen. So we decided to try and do a kind of an online thing, little snippets, kind of just doing real, real kind of uh, only you know one minute, two minute little uh, pieces, but based on this play. So I'm I'm weirdly trying to adapt a half written play of my own into a series of online little dramas. So that's quite an interesting thing. So at the moment, that's all. That's all I'm really adapting. But I'd hope to be adapting someone else uh, next year. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Some good book choices, I think, for people to to go and investigate and also go and watch the adaptations as well. As uh, so, we're providing a, a kind of lockdown service here. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's a. I think we're key workers, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's us they're clapping for. <laughs> I hardly think so. <laughs> But listen, thanks as always, Chris, for the chat. Great talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at PaulCuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review, and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddihy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading. <laughs>